With summer just around the corner and the sun starting to beat down, running hats are the perfect protection to keep you cool and focused on your miles. And Running Warehouse has everything you need. We've tested several hats over the years at Doctors of Running and have really enjoyed two brands in particular, CLA and Fractal. If you like a slim, sleek hat with all the color options, CLA's Go Caps are ultralight, airy, and have really great lockdown. For those who want a wider fit, you may want to check out the caps from Fractal, which have more coverage and a solid UPF 50+, plus to keep you protected from the sun. Whether you decide to run with CLA or Fractal this summer, you can find both today at Running Warehouse. Visit the link in the description to find our reviews of each brand and find the right cap for your next run. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Doctors Running Podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. I'm Nathan Brown, your host for tonight, along with Dr. David Salas, and we have Dr. Ryan Wooderson with us. He has been with us before. Uh, We're excited to have him back. If you want to hear our conversation with him, it was on Recovery 101, and it was our 101st episode. So if you want to hear kind of the baseline of a lot of stuff regarding recovery, why don't you go back to that episode, see what he had to say, and then come back back and watch this episode. I know, Ryan, since you have uh, been with us last time, our viewership has grown a lot. We have a lot of new people kind of week by week right now joining in to listen, which has been awesome. Um, and so we're trying to refer people back to other episodes we've done far before the the listenership has been where it is. So um, again, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. No, that's awesome. I'm glad you guys are growing. And I appreciate you having me back on. I'm stoked. Awesome. Um, Well, Ryan is out in Colorado, uh, which means that he's soaking up the stellar performance by the Nuggets and Nikola Jokic. Um, And we are having him back on to dive a little bit deeper into part of the conversation about recovery. And we're going to really center this whole conversation around the topic of sleep and what sleep does for us, why we sleep, um, how sleep and stress interact with each other, how sleep impacts recovery, sleep hygiene, um, sleep and running performance. We're going to dive into all of those things throughout this episode. And so for our subjective for the week, we want to ask you all if you want to share some tips that you've found for your busy life and how you make sleep a priority or ways that you wish sleep was better or some sleep horror stories as it it relates to a race. I know I've had times where I have a big race the next day and I get no sleep the night before for a myriad of reasons. So um, let us know your sleep stories below uh, and, and we'd love to hear them. All right. So before we go into the topic itself, uh, Ryan, just give us a little bit for those who who don't know you, give us a little background on kind of who you are as a physical therapist, where you're practicing now and kind of what you specialize in and what you do. Yeah, I'm located in uh, Denver proper. I've been practicing here for 11 years. Uh, Just founded, co-founded and opened up Revo Physiotherapy and Sports Performance. Uh, it's a it's a branch of a company that started in Boulder. Um, so we just opened in February, and I'm, I'm geeked to get this operation rolling hard, uh, and it's going well so far. So probably the last um, seven or eight years, I've I've focused uh, very hard on serving runners uh, because I am one, and I understand most of our problems pretty darn well having experienced many of them myself. So uh, that's who I tend to focus on in my treatment, though, you know, people come in and see me and they're like, do you treat anything above the waist? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, actually I do. I, I do all the things, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, my, my preferences 
is the is the running stuff. So I'm happy to see anything, but I really love working with runners. So that's that's what we do. Great. Um, and the other quick overlap between Ryan and I, very it's it's really uh, peripheral. We didn't actually overlap at all. But I did my I'm from Wisconsin. Did my undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, and Ryan, you did your residency. Um, at UW as well, right? If I'm remembering correct. That is true. I had the great fortune of, of doing my residency at UW um, in 2012. And I lived in Eagle River, which is, you podcasters can't see me, but it's way at the top of the hand, uh, like 20, 20 minutes from the UP. And I had to commute to Madison every couple of weeks. So it was an awesome year, very cold year, but awesome one nonetheless. Yeah. The summer is great in Eagle River and that's, Oh, that's it's gorgeous. Pretty much, you try to soak up three months for the other nine. Yep, yep. Um, Flies the size of your thumb. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Um, so let's let's kind of take a step back for the people who didn't want to go back and re-listen to the entire episode uh, of Recovery 101. Can you just give us an overview of recovery and kind of what you think is important when it comes to that? Because there's so many things, you know, massage guns and compression and hot, cold contrast baths, all these different things. How do you but how do you conceptualize recovery and what's important? Yeah. Oh, boy. I have this conversation an awful lot um, with runners because, you know, the, the hot. <laughs> cold contrast things, the compression boots, the massage guns, all the stuff uh, that that tends to get the front seat in, in terms of coverage and what you see on social media and everything like that. Uh, but I almost never talk about those things. Not never. I very rarely talk about those things in my treatment sessions or my coaching sessions. What I'm talking about in terms of recovery most often uh, are, are sleep, nutrition, hydration, and stress. Those are the four pillars of um, recovery for me as a as a provider for any athlete i don't care if you're a runner or power lifter that's that's across the board yeah and why you know i think that what also gets the forefront of attention is the workouts so how many runs you do a week how hard you do your workouts how many workouts you do that and how many miles you run a week whatever did i say how many miles you run a week twice whatever i said that twice but that's how important people people put it out as the forefront so why do you talk so much about recovery with your athletes and i feel like your niche even as you're kind of like uh, you're through even through your like instagram and how you try to do community education you do focus a lot on recovery so um, why so much on recovery in, in a really tiny nutshell, your fitness is only as good as your recovery. Um, you know, the, the change happens in between the workouts. So it doesn't have matter how many miles you run or how much strength training you do. And yes, please runners, all of you need to be doing strength training, but it, what happens, the change for you and your progression as an athlete happens in the middle right? It happens in between each workout. So what are you doing to set yourself up for the next good workout you hope to have, right? And we've all had the bad ones. We've all had the bad ones. We know what they feel like. They're terrible. Um, we've had some good ones too. We know what those feel like. So doing the work to set yourself up for a good workout to come is where the progress really happens for each athlete. So that's why I focus on those things because all of that happens in the middle of your runs and in between your training sessions. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think to piggyback off of that, I think more than ever in the last two, three years, 
I've heard more and more cases of reds or relative energy deficiency, you know, in sport and people are not taking care of their bodies. They're quote unquote on that grind, right? Like they're, they're going hard all of the time, seven days a week, and they're expecting these big gains. And then a lot of times maybe they get it in the short term, but they, it's not sustainable. And then they start crashing and they start going through the injury cycles and things like that. So I think that's, I think that's a great way to look at it and to see like everything happens in between the workouts. I agree. No, I, I, I can't overstate um, how important it is to pay attention to things like relative energy deficiency because it is so um, ingrained in the culture of endurance sports. It is deep. It is very deep and it is problematic. And it is something we have uh, as providers haven't always understood fully how to recognize right away. And even as athletes, we don't understand what we're doing to our bodies until we're on the backside of it and things are falling apart and we don't know why. Right. And, and some of much of that can be tied to relative energy deficiency. So it's something that uh, needs to be on every endurance athletes radar for certain and, and people who take care of endurance athletes. So on that, right, this will be my, kind of the last topic before we go into the main topic of sleep. If, if we are an athlete or if you're somebody working with endurance athletes, what are some of those signs of lack of recovery or you might be entering into this relative energy deficiency, kind of getting that red syndrome? Are, what are some of those signs that people can be looking out for? Yeah, this is this is where it gets kind of tough because you go to like Dr. Google and and you look at the signs and symptoms <laughs> of, of reds and it's all very general. It's very uh, ambiguous. So you are fatigued for longer than you should be fatigued. You're, you're excessively fatigued. Um, your body doesn't recover as quickly. Like, what does that even mean? Um, you have muscle aches and pains, joint aches and pains where, um, you may not have as many or as intensely as before. So those kinds of things are definitely things to look for. Appetite suppression also can be a sign or symptom, um, excessive fatigue. So again, these are really nebulous things that I'm like, Oh yeah. Like I've just been working really hard. Like, of course I feel this stuff, right? Like everybody's had that same thought. And so it's, it's really tough to identify as an athlete when you're in the middle of it. Um, and in particular as a coach or a provider for that athlete, when they're in the middle of it, like, is this what's going on? Um, so our, my radar for reds is always very, very high. Um, and especially if an athlete is coming to me with, um, just multiple things happening at once, musculoskeletally, um, stress wise, energy availability wise, like I'm pushing really hard on this workout. Uh, I've done this workout before, but I don't have the same paces or the same results. That's that kind of trips my trigger of like, okay, something's up here that we need to pay attention to, right? Like it may not be reds immediately, but we need to watch this uh, because this could be like short-term sleep deficiency, or it could be like ongoing development of reds, that kind of thing. So it's tough to identify right out of the gate. Right. But those are good times. It sounds like what you do is you kind of go through an inventory of their sleep, their nutrition, their hydration, and their stress and see 
do these things line up with like you're having this new level of fatigue that you have fatigue, soreness, all these different kind of vague symptoms. And is there something that lines up? I think a little anecdote just to add in there is I'm taking I'm actually taking a whole week right in the as we recorded this. I'm in the middle of a week off of running. I last Thursday, I went and I started running and I've just been having some like hamstring pain, a little bit of shin pain. My foot's been feeling weird. My back has been feeling weird. And I got done and I've just been feeling like kind of dizzy at the end of runs and just off, like just really hard to wake up in the mornings. Um, And I'm, you know, I've got a lot going on right now. I'm in a transition of end of semester to starting a new semester in my own schooling. And I'm also kind of transitioning in like the teaching between semesters. So there's a lot going on on the stress levels. There's a lot going on with my sleep, the physical amount. I just got done with a race. So I just feel exhausted. I'm like, I'm going to just take a break and I'm going to take some time to sleep a lot more. I'm going to take some time to do some weightlifting um, and not go through running and just kind of reset. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't think I have reds, but I do think that I'm exhibiting some of those signs of just not enough for recovery. Um, and we'll see how the end of the week goes, you know, and it might be more than that that I need, but um, I think what you brought up is is awesome. So thanks for bringing that. Again, if you want to dive a little bit on that surface level of each of these topics, sleep, nutrition, hydration, stress, you can go back to our Recovery 101 episode and kind of hear them talk more about that. But let's start talking about sleep. Um, and so first kind of big question is really why do we even sleep? What's the importance of sleep? What happens as we sleep? Oh, boy. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're starting really wide in the funnel, aren't we? Um, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Why do we sleep? Oh, man, there's there's an evolutionary um, discussion to be, <laughs> to be had here, because if you if you listen to the people who have PhDs in this stuff, which I 100 percent do not um, they will tell you that sleep evolutionarily is like disadvantageous, um, you know, in, in a survival type way for like hunt, eat, kill. It doesn't make sense. Um, but we do because we have to. And one of the reasons that we have to is because it acts sleep on a really general level acts as a reset for our body in a number of ways. Um, a reset for our hormones and neurotransmitters to repair our bodies, you know, in these days, you know, we're not talking caveman days anymore, but in these days to repair ourselves from really hard workouts, that's where all that work happens. Um, so sleep is massive in terms of how our bodies are able to repair themselves from the work that we've done or the stress, whether physical or emotional that we've incurred throughout our day to day. Um, so that's, that's the purpose that sleep serves on a really surface level. Cool. And you talk about kind of this reset with hormones, um, and, and kind of resetting some of those things. Can you give us a little more details on what is happening hormone wise or other things that are regulated, um, just through that, through, through sleep? What, what's kind of happening there? Yeah. So again, I don't have a PhD in this stuff, but hormones that are regulated have a lot to do. Everybody knows, or many people know, hopefully about cortisol, right? It's the stress hormone. Um, and it's something that I wish was tested routinely in physicians offices, but it's not. Um, so that cortisol level is effectively cleared out and regulated by adequate sleep or elevated by inadequate sleep. 
right? Among, among other things. So, you know, yeah. So you had a big workout and you had just a crazy day at work. So physical stress is high. Emotional stress is high. Interesting thing is your brain doesn't categorize what that stress is. It just knows stress, right? It doesn't know physical versus emotional. It just knows, holy crap, that was a lot, right? And so your cortisol becomes elevated throughout the day because that is a lot. And if you sleep for, you know, for whatever reason, for four or five hours that following night or that night, then you can't flush out whatever you want to say, regulate that cortisol that has been accumulating in your body throughout the day. And so you achieve, say you stack up multiples of those days in a row, because we all know what that's like, hard workouts, hard days at work, hard days at home, whatever it may be, the cortisol achieves a new baseline every single time. And it's the, it's the sleep or the good sleep that helps us bring that cortisol level back down to where our bodies want it to be. So that's just one example. The cortisol is like the most important in my mind, um, among, among others. Yeah. And I think it's great that you bring that up because I feel like at least in all the physiology classes I took, they, they looked over cortisol and there's this philosophy or the syndrome that they believe called general adaptation syndrome, which basically is you have a stress to the body of some kind, there's an alarm to it, there's a resistance, you build against it, then there's a phase of exhaustion or recovery. And how you go into that next phase completely determines how you come out of the other side. And if you have a decreased amount of recovery, now it becomes a positive feedback loop where you're putting more in and then you're getting more exhaustion out. And so that keeps going and going and going and going. And before you know it, now you're having injuries, maybe there's mental health problems. Like there's all kinds of things that go where stress begets more stress. And if you aren't able to reset that, that can be a very twisted cycle and can be very hard to break, whether it's, you know, life stress or physical stress. And I think being able to moderate that is, is very, very important. And I think this is something we might get into later, but when it comes to, you know, if you have a very stressful day, whether if it's physical, emotional, whatever, does the, um, does elevated cortisol levels impact your ability to sleep or your ability to like fall asleep or, or what's the relationship there? It absolutely affects your ability to fall asleep. It's one of those things that there are multiple processes that have to happen um, in not necessarily in a, a certain order, but they have to happen to allow your body to feel like it's ready to sleep. And regulation of cortisol is one of those things, right? Our, our cortisol kind of ebbs and flows in typical patterns throughout the day. And what sleep allows us to do is bring down that cortisol level. So we kind of start in an appropriate level for the next day because it does elevate and, and depress uh, multiple times throughout our day, depending on what's going on in our own physiology and just the activities throughout the day. So um, I've forgotten now what your question is. I got off on a little bit of a, 
a tangent there. Just how Sorry. does is it harder is it harder to fall asleep with high? And I have not you made me think of another question, so hopefully I remember it. But does having high levels of cortisol or a high stressful day make it harder to sleep? Like is there shown relationship between cortisol levels? And I get and like you said, we don't get this stuff measured all the time. So how you know, how much does the level play into it? But anyway, just kind of doesn't make it harder to fall asleep was kind of the the yeah. original question yeah. there. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It does make it harder to fall asleep. If, you're, if your cortisol levels towards the end of your day or when you're trying to go to sleep are too high relative to where they need to be, then you're going to have a much harder time potentially falling asleep or staying asleep because that baseline is elevated above where your body wants it to be. So 100%. And I want to, we'll get into it later about maybe how to manage time before bed or if there's strategies to kind of get yourself in a good space, ready to sleep. But before we get there, so we talk about, you kind of talked about this reset. Um, You talked about cortisol. You said there's some other hormones that are involved as well. Um, But that also made me think about like, then what happens kind of if you don't get the sleep, are there, what kind of effects do we have? You know, obviously you have changes in cortisol levels, but what does that do to our bodies? If we're having this, you know, does one night matter? If I, if I have a late night of work that I got to get done, plus some school work, like how much does one night of bad sleep impact me? And what does that do um, to me? Oh boy. Um, one night does matter. Um, if you read, if there's a, a scientist by the name of Matthew Walker. And if you read any of his books or, or listen to any of his podcasts, he's a brilliant human. He would tell you that one night absolutely does matter. And, and I agree with him. He will spout off data about, and I forget what the numbers are exactly, but he spouts off regularly data about um, surgeons. This is a really relatable thing because many of us have had some sort of interaction with a surgeon or a physician, but um, medical decision-making, you know, the capacity for a surgeon to make all the appropriate decisions on a good night of sleep is much higher than if it had a poor night of sleep, say six hours or fewer. How many surgeons are getting eight hours of sleep a night? Right. And I, I right. <laughs> if, if I remember correctly, this, his statistic that he uses, Matthew Walker is, you know, f- uh, surgeons who sleep six hours or fewer a night or even one night, their likelihood of making a medical error goes up 170% the next day, Whoa! which is (laughs) crazy. It's crazy. And you think how many physicians, not, not much less anybody else, but how many physicians are underslept or sleep deficient and how much of medical errors are driven by sleep deficiency by nature of our medical system. We don't have to get on that tangent, but like just by nature of our medical system, right? So one night of sleep does matter. I mean, car accident, car accident incidence rates go up on one bad night of sleep. Um, one of the stats that he, he just blew me away with this is on um, daylight savings time in the spring where we uh, spring forward and now we lose an hour of sleep across the world. This is m- across the world. There is an uptick of about 20% of emergency department admissions for a cardiac event that night in the spring, there's a 20% uptick across the world. 
Conversely, in the, in the fall, when we regain that hour of sleep, there is about a 20% downtick in admissions to the, to the ED for cardiac events. This is millions and millions of people. So that can't be just a coincidence, right? And obviously there are other, there are other factors to consider. So we can't treat this like a vacuum, but that's really alarming. So one night does matter. Wow. And you know, you're, you've hit on a couple things too. You've hit on kind of like a cognitive aspect for like decision-making. And then there's the very physical aspect of uh, the, an extreme with, with a cardiac event. And so <laughs> sleep doesn't just help us physically. It helps us cognitively and emotionally and all those things. Obviously we're, we're not these siloed humans. We have all of these things that, that coalesce together. So I think the other, I think with uh, daylight savings, there's also a huge increase in uh, car crashes too in the spring. Um, if I'm remembering right, I heard a statistic, which would go into kind of that cognitive folk, maybe focus and, um, and that kind of thing. Um, so obviously you want to avoid these, these moments of short term, I guess I've kind of two pronged questions off of that is one is what's enough, like how much sleep is enough to, to get what you need. And the second is, um, what if you do have a bad night of sleep for one reason or another, how can you make up for that? Or is there a way to make up for it? Or do you just lose out and you're just setting yourself back? What, what should you do with that? Right. So first question is, what do you do if you have a bad night of sleep? Right. Um, in my mind, me personally, I do everything I can to try and just get back in my rhythm the following day. I fight through that day, do everything I can just to do all the things that I need to do for my family, for work and whatever. And then I am making sure that I am obedient to my typical rhythm at the end of that day, if not like trying to shift it a little bit earlier. Um, and, and to the point of catching up, can we, can we bank sleep? Can we catch up on lost sleep? And I, I think, um, you know, Matthew Walker, he's who I refer to on a lot of this stuff. He's kind of the world's preeminent expert on this, but, um, he would, he would say no. He's at Cal, right? Yeah. He's at Berkeley. He Berkeley? Yeah. 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 Okay. I know exactly who he is. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, he, he, he would, would say no on the catching up thing. He would say, no, you can't catch up. Sleep is not this, this bank that we have thought it was for a long time where the people talk about like, Oh, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or, you know, whatever, like I'll, I'll make up for it. Uh, a couple days later, whatever that doesn't physiologically, that doesn't happen. Once it's gone, it's gone. Now you can reset and try to like get yourself back into your typical rhythm. And I always advocate for that, but you're not going to catch up on, on what you've lost. So it's not like you can have a five, five hour night, one night and make up for it for going for, you know, 16 hours the next night. I had a roommate in college <laughs> who uh, came home at 7 a.m. and slept until the next day at 8 a.m. It was a 25 hour sleep <laughs> oh and it was, the cra- it was the craziest thing. And I was like, what did that do for yourself? I don't know what just happened, but you've been sleeping and I don't know how you didn't go to the bathroom. <laughs> Uh, but apparently that, <laughs> that's a, that's a hibernation, know. my dude. That is. That's <laughs> you straight up grizzly. What in the world? It was, it was wild. That's impressive. Was and I was, it was, it was great because I was around that day. It was not a day that I was like gone a lot. So 
Like I know he was sleeping. Like I, he was out. He was just gone. Um, sorry. So the other part of that question is what is enough? So like I, I gave the hypothetical of maybe you get five and then you'd try to double it or whatever, but what's, what's enough sleep to try to work into as your routine to get that reset that you need of all of those, all the hormone regulation and things like that. Yeah. So the average adult, I mean, it's, it's different across, across the lifespan. Um, the average adult needs seven to nine hours. And I think most of us know that, um, you know, there are some people who say like, Oh, I could David Goggins, maybe would say like, I can do anything, (laughs) do anything on four hours of sleep. And like, yeah, you probably can, (laughs) you probably can, but what other ways are you suffering for that? Um, so the average adult needs seven to nine hours. If you're talking to a teenage endurance athlete, they need a lot more because their bodies are doing so many crazy things that I don't physiologically understand. Um, they need a lot more sleep. They need like 10 to 12 hours of sleep a night. Uh, the, the teenage endurance athletes, which how many of them get that? Like very very few. I, I was imagine. just going to say, you know, that ain't happening. No, no. Like five thirty cross country practice. They're, they're up for that. And they're probably going to bed at 10 o'clock at night or 11 after homework or whatever. Right. So they're not getting enough sleep. What? how, how do you recommend, uh, how, or I guess, do you have a big hand in working with that population? Um, with the, with the high school crowd or a lot of the people you're working with kind of more adult, adult runners. Most of my, most of my clients are adult runners. I do have a few, um, who are teenage endurance athletes and the conversation with them is no different. It's always like stress, sleep, nutrition, hydration, and that, you know, their stress is different than adult stress sometimes, much of the time, but, um, the conversations are, are the same. So most of my clientele are adults. Okay, cool. Yeah, I uh, I work with a group of high schoolers during the off seasons in the winter and then in the summer uh, between cross country and track. And I spend the whole first day talking about the things that really matter, which is like eating well and sleep like this, this stuff. And um, I was I was like, it finally felt felt like it clicked last time because at the, the last day I said, what's the most important thing that you feel like you learned? And they all talked about sleeping. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And <laughs> drinking milk, I think they said. But that's a Wisconsin value, <laughs> oh, right? Oh, for sure. I was like, this is inc- <laughs> Yeah, I have my chocolate milk incredible. after every run. That's- <laughs> yeah, it's valuable. <laughs> um, so I, I was I was like, this is this is great. But I think it's so hard to be a high school endurance athlete. Um, and even, I feel like even like young college, yeah, collegiate athlete, like the lifestyle in those ages is not one that's conducive to living like this and getting 10 to 12 hours of sleep to hang out with your friends. You're hanging out late at night, you know, you're playing video games or you're, you know, going to late night, late night Taco Bell or whatever, you know, so, um, or studying. I guess some people do that too. People huh? do study late. That is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I forget that we have to like study for school and stuff. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But give the kids some benefit of a doubt. Dang, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> I should. <laughs> I should. Well, I mean, you, um, you think about the, inc- the incidence of uh, stress fractures or relative energy yes. deficiency that happens oh, yes. in, in teenage or collegiate athletes. Oh, my God. Yeah, David, you had two of them. Some, some, had two. Yeah, some of it was probably almost certainly related to the lifestyle that that requires. Doesn't doesn't require. That's that's silly to say. The culture that is endemic in that 
arena, right, of collegiate or high-level endurance athletics is just silly and is no wonder that you're having all these athletes have uh, multiple stress fractures or energy deficiency or whatever. It's, It's silly. Yep. So kind of in the adults, again, kind of going back to it's kind of that seven to nine. If you're younger, if you're in that kind of high school or collegiate, you probably want 10 to 12 hours of sleep, especially when you're in season. Um, But that's kind of just recommended across the board for just like your life at that phase. Um, That my my final question kind of on this short term, kind of if you have one night that's bad or a couple nights that are bad, how much do you recommend that people change their running routine in relation to their sleep deprivation? If you had one night, bad night of sleep, you're supposed to do a big workout. How do you counsel people in that? Or, or what do you recommend for that? Right. Um, yeah, that is, that is such a, a fluid conversation, um, that I have quite regularly. Um, I can tell you what I do for myself and then I will tell you how I advise my athletes. Uh, for myself, I am very conservative when I have a, a crappy night of sleep. If I'm supposed to have a tempo workout the next day and I sleep five hours, right? Or if, I've, if I'm awake for two hours in the middle of the night, uh, that tempo workout turns into an easy run or like pseudo tempo workout, not, not the full thing. Um, not necessarily because I'm afraid I'm going to injure myself, but I don't need to stack up stress upon stress and to just perpetuate that cycle. That's not healthy for me. And I know I, I could tolerate the workout. That's not the question. I'm just not trying to stack up stress upon stress because that almost certainly will lead me to an injury. And that's kind of how I advise my athletes be like, okay, this is your decision. This is your training. It is your body. I'm going to give you the information of stacking up stress upon stress, and you can decide for yourself what you need to do. Um, you know, so I'm not telling anybody what they have to do, but here's the evidence. I think something that that's super interesting about that perspective is, um, what you place more value on. Like, I think that it's, it's so easy for a lot of runners. Um, some, and I think I don't necessarily fall into this so much anymore for myself, but it's so easy to place top dollar value on the workout and the conf, my confidence level in myself would drop and plummet if I don't get my scheduled workout in. And so we say, I got to just push through and get the workout in. Cause that's the most valuable thing to me. Whereas if you flip the script and say, actually, you need to be recovered to be able to handle that stress and for it to actually have the benefit on your body that you'd want, you have to create a, a different hierarchy where your recovery and your like baseline level of health and cortisol levels and all this stuff is in the real good spot so that you can go do that instead of saying, I'm going to do that thing because I have to do the thing. Um, it becomes less important, less valuable. So 100%. I want everybody who's listening to this podcast right now to rewind 60 seconds and listen to that five more times. Because (laughs) if, if I could caption this entire podcast with any one thing, it is that, that, you know, it depends on what you value and your next workout is only going to be as good as your recovery. And that progression that you're looking for as an athlete isn't going to happen the way you want if you're stacking the stress upon stress. So what do you value? Do you value knocking out the workout for the sake of your ego and thinking you're doing the right thing? Or 
do you value taking care of your body looking longer term and saying, okay, this is a day. It's a day. It's a workout. Give it a break. Maybe you still run, but maybe it looks a little bit different and we live to fight hard another day. Yeah. That's great. David, what do you, I, what do you, what do you do? I'm curious on your, just anecdotally, your side of things. It's a little bit tricky, right? Like I've got some teammates and training partners that I work out with. We have a coach, we have a schedule, you know, I I think what you were talking about earlier, Ryan, about looking at things forward, prioritizing things and having the knowledge available. It's up to you in order to execute those things. And I mean, if, if it was really bad and you had to pull from a workout or, um, or, or let coach know, like you could, it's not like you couldn't, it's just more so that like, you just got to make sure you do the little things right. Like every once in a while, like if it's once in a rare while you're pulling from a workout or something, it's, it's fine. But you do, you just want to make sure it's not a regular occurrence. Cause obviously if that's happening regularly, something's up, right? Like whether it's from, recovery standpoint, sleep standpoint, training standpoint, whatever, you know, like, or maybe, or maybe you were sick or something like that. Every once in a while, there's just a bad day and there's not really a great explanation for it. And then sometimes things come back around and you're like, Oh, that was why like, like hindsight's 2020, right? (laughs) Like, um, but no, I mean, that's definitely how we approach it. I was, ah, I totally forgot what I was going to say. I was going to say something piggybacking off the last topic. My bad. Um, but it's all good. I mean, because obviously, like, the way we operate, like, it's a pretty finite, like, it's a pretty fragile line there. Like, building the mileage, maintaining that kind of a volume, making sure that the, the workouts, the intensity is there, not just for maintenance, but for getting better, you know? And um, with that said, I think the way that I choose to look at it is I know the workload's going to be there and, and like, we're all full-time like people, right? Like this isn't, I'm not a professional athlete by any means. So like looking at it from that standpoint, I know my work day is probably going to be more work than the actual running itself. So I actually try to set myself up (laughs) in a way that like, how can I get through the total day and feel okay? That's usually sleep and eating or yes, sleeping more, eating more. That's usually what it comes down to. And we were talking about things earlier in the podcast. And one of the things I noticed in myself when I start getting inklings of those things, and I was, I was laughing a little bit when you said waist down and shoulder up. I was like, runners get shoulder injuries. They get neck. Like, they'll tighten up in the trap from pulling. Like, <laughs> like there's things that could happen. But, like, um, I've seen Molly Seidel with tape there. I've seen Galen Rupp with shoulder tape. I've seen some pretty high-level athletes, you know, with shoulder injuries. Um, but I'll notice it in myself with, like, if my shoulder and my hip and my foot all hurt at the same time. It's like... I'm probably not recovering well. You know, it's like multiple body parts. There's no reason for me to be like tired, fatigued and hurting in all of these different places all at the same time. You know, like I didn't take a hard fall off of something. I didn't like there's no noticeable reason for why that could be happening. So I I try to look at it more from the big picture and I try to look at it more as my my daily life beyond the run itself. And can I actually, do I have enough recovery? Do I have enough food? Am I able to, to do all of the things that's necessary of me to, 
to be a good runner, to be a good employee, and very soon be a good husband. Like, can I check those boxes and and be a functioning human being and be the best human being I can? And if things start to falter and I start seeing some of those signs that and I recognize it myself, I'm someone that works a lot. I do a lot of things. I have a lot of hobbies. Like I have to start noticing those inklings and pay attention to those things. And when I start recognizing those signs, it's time to take a step back. Look at the drawing board. Hobbies like tacos, Pokemon, um, wood burning is coming back. Wood burning. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) So, yeah, <laughs> Ryan, I've got another question for you, too. So um, when it comes to this kind of short-term effects, we've kind of been talking about one night matters. Um, one night matters. Um, I've w- There's not really a way to make up for it. Is there a role of, or like what is the role of napping, um, maybe is the question, and does that fall into this kind of short-term effects if you're having one of these kind of higher stress days? I guess what's the role of of naps? Yeah. Oh man. We're talking to like the the athletes that put in tons of mileage that don't sleep a lot. We're talking to the new moms and dads that don't sleep a lot. We're talking to people that just work crazy hours. So you know this is this is life. We're not all sleeping eight hours every single night. That's that's just not that's not realistic and I understand that. Um so yeah, you have to give yourself some affordances in your day to day so you can operate like the human that you need to operate. Um, so hell yes, napping. Absolutely. But what does that need to look like? Right. Um, there's one of the, one of the hormones involved with sleep is called adenosine and it's effectively this, this hormone that allows or creates what's called uh, sleep pressure or like your capacity to want to sleep. And so as adenosine stacks up on you or accumulates during the day, then you're more likely to want to sleep. However, if you feel like you get a crappy night of sleep and you want a nap, please take one, but don't take it at five o'clock and sleep for an hour because that resets some of the clock on adenosine relieves the valve on that sleep pressure. So it's going to be harder for you to get a decent night's sleep like you're expecting to. You're not going to get your seven to nine hours probably that night if you're sleeping for 30 minutes or whatever it is at five o'clock. So take a nap after your crappy night of sleep, but make it earlier in the day if you can and keep it short like 20, 30 minutes max. Um, you know, when I, I will never forget after we had our son, uh, I was a freaking zombie <laughs> as, as many parents are, many new parents are right. I, like, Oh, it's, it's, it's I, remembering back. Oh boy. Um, it, the newborn phase is just, it's insane. And our son was born in January. And I remember like, 10 degree days in February, just going out to my car, I would wrap up in every puffy thing I had and just sleep for 20 minutes in my car at noon because I was so tired. I couldn't, I was stuttering and I don't have a stutter. I was like mixing, mixing words up and I don't typically do that. So I was just kind of a cognitive buffoon and doing these 20, 30 minute naps helped me reset so I could survive the work day and then just do it all over again. 
Um, so if you're going to take a nap, yes, please do. If you feel like you need it, make it before like one or two o'clock and keep it short. So your adenosine can stack back up on you and you have that sleep pressure building towards the end of the day. And so naps have more to do with adenosine than they do with like cortisol resets. Or do you know if naps also impact the cortisol as well? I mean, sleep is sleep. So I would imagine that a nap, even though it would be 20 or 30 minutes, would have some appreciable or measurable effect on a cortisol reset. Like why, why wouldn't it? You're not going to get the deep REM sleep or whatever necessarily that it takes, you, it takes our bodies a while to get into. But it, I would imagine... Matthew Walker would know much more than I would on this, but I, I would imagine <laughs> that, uh, that it does do some measurable effect on cortisol. Cool. So we've kind of talked about the short-term stuff, maybe some strategies. If you're coming out of it, you might have to modify some stuff. Again, if you're, if you're a young parent or if you're in a season where like regular sleep just doesn't come, maybe you work night shift and you have to like switch back and forth you know, if you know, these are seasons, I think it's worth, it sounds like it's worth considering what are you training for and why right now? And maybe it's not the time to go and try to break a new record or run a new distance for the first time, just because your body isn't getting the stuff it needs uh, based on what I'm learning here from you, Ryan. So, um, kind of those are short-term things when it, when this becomes a pattern and you kind of reference the idea of these high school kids who are having these different, you know, oh, I are having to skip a lot of workouts because I didn't sleep well. If that becomes a habit and we're not getting good sleep regularly, are there is there a buildup effect of these negative impacts on our body or what's happening to us if we have long term kind of sleep deprivation or, you know, bad sleeping habits? Yeah. Oh, boy. So many things, um, you know, poor, consistent, poor sleep is correlated with mental health and depression. It's correlated with heart disease. It's correlated with diabetes and obesity. It's, it, it, it underpins almost every single aspect of our health. So repetitive poor sleep is one of the worst things we can do to ourselves. Um, and to avoid that stacking up, you just have to have routine. I don't know if that's your, your question necessarily, but, um, the, the long-term effects of, of poor sleep are really, really harmful. They're starting to find linkages to so many chronic diseases or, or conditions that we didn't realize before that are linked to consistent poor sleep. I think one thing that we can add upon that too, is just taking a look at our nervous system, right? And cortisol in high amounts is normally associated with the sympathetic response, right? Sympathetic being your fight or flight type of response. So it's like if you're running from a tiger, you're running a race, you're in a high stress work environment, you need that. That's, that's good. But you need it in small amounts, you need it in controlled amounts. And when that's something that's upregulated all of the time, our neurochemistry, the way our brain operates, the way our hormones operate, the way we operate starts to change. And there's just such a high prevalence of a lot of things that go on from long exposure to that. And you already touched on a lot of those, but like the amount of comorbidities, there's some link and even like some autoimmune cases, things like all kinds of things that could happen in gene expression and how your body reacts 
can go like wildfire when you're exposed to cortisol for high amounts for high periods of time. So I think it's it's great to get that reset. It's good to know those signs in yourself and to look out for those types of things. And that's so, oh, go ahead, Ryan. No, you're you're 100 correct. I'm so glad you mentioned the sympathetic nervous system that that drives our fight or flight response, and it's the sleep, quality sleep, consistent quality sleep that helps regulate that. And if we're in this consistent elevated state of fight or flight, it is so difficult to bring ourselves out of that. And it drives so many other things. It drives anxiety. It drives heart disease. It drives a ton of stuff. So sleep underpins all of that, right? And it underpin like that, that sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight response. If we're constantly in that, we're in trouble. We're, we're doing ourselves way more harm than good by doing this like rise and grind four hours of sleep. I can do anything on four hours of sleep kind of kind of mode. Right. It's terrible. So you're, you've got me thinking a little bit about um, you've, you've talked about stress is stress and stacking stress and like there's different kinds of stress. Running is a physical stress. There's work, which is emotional stress. And I often hear people, like a lot of the runners I work with, and, and this is, includes me, we run to relieve stress, but it also is stress. So how do you balance kind of that reality of like, this is all, and it all relates to cortisol, it sounds like, it, it, like from a, from a level on the kind of like endocrine level, um, it all relates to cortisol because it's just increasing our amount of cortisol. So how does running actually play into stress reduction um, and then how do you kind of like manage the amount of stress in your life? Like what strategies can we have to not have too high of elevated cortisol, which is putting us in that, you know, fight or flight spot. And maybe as you've said, like doesn't allow us to sleep. So, um, I guess take that as you will. I don't even know what my question is. That's a, that's a lot of like, questions. How, but how does, how does, think... how does stress as sleep reduction or, or running as stress reduction but it's also stress at the same time. Like, how do you reconcile those things? How do people drive down their stress? Um, what kind of tips do you have for that, Ryan? Yeah, I, I, I think I just wanted to, to set up a metaphor here. Like, when we take a look at a building, a lot of people take a look at, like, stacking brick by brick by brick. We're building, and each workout, each day, everything we're doing is a brick, right? But a brick, let's say you end up getting a brick house, right? Like, let's say that you build this thing. It's only as good as the foundation that it stands upon. And if that foundation isn't there and it's crumbling and it's underneath you, any little thing can make that whole thing go. And so even though you're doing a lot of work, sometimes you're like staying on this fine line, this thin ice, and things can just break and crumble underneath you. And if you don't have a good foundation, like there's not much to build off of. At a certain point, it's going to break. And yeah, that's all. No, just a I, picture. That's that's a good analogy. I, I think that's perfect. Like everybody refer or not everybody, but a lot of people refer to their workouts or the work that they do in training as bricks, like another brick in the wall today, another brick in the wall, right? Like, yeah, that's good. That's hundred percent. But to your point, a stack of bricks on a pile of sand is just a stack of bricks. Right. So the foundation of that training, that stack of bricks that you want to turn into a house for an epic performance for yourself is only going to be as good as your recovery, which is underpinned by sleep. So you have to have it. And Nathan, I think 
your, your question about the conversation of running is stress, right? It's physical stress, but we also do it for mental health reasons and, and, um, kind of release or relief or whatever you want to call it. I have this conversation all the time, all the time. And I try to couch it in a way not to, um, put any blame on running, but people need to understand that yes, running can help manage our anxiety. I run to manage my own anxiety and anxiety is the number one reason insomnia exists or disrupted sleep exists. It is the number one reason. So we have to manage the anxiety and and a lot of us run to do that. So I very much get it. I run to do that. It's the only place my mind is ever quiet. And I hear that from so many people. So you have to have the running, but the running is physical stress. And so you are effectively elevating your cortisol level by the act of running. So how do we like walk that line? And I ask folks like, well, what else do you do for stress relief? And quite often it's just, I exercise. Great, great. I'm a physical therapist. I love hearing that. However, what other things do you do to like take the pressure off, take your stress level from a, an eight down to a five or whatever the scale is? Like, I don't, I don't care about the numbers on the scale, but like, how do you turn down the volume? And it's amazing to me how few people have other coping mechanisms outside of exercise. And I encourage everyone to plug into other, like, yes, please keep moving. For the love of God, keep moving. But you need to have other things outside of just exercise to manage your stress and to manage your anxiety because the exercise does elevate your cortisol level and cortisol disrupts your sleep, right? Or or mismanaged cortisol disrupts your sleep. So things that are calming in nature versus high intensity, right? Breathing. I I talk a lot in my treatment sessions or my coaching sessions about just breathing and breathing strategies throughout a person's work day or life. Um, You know, journaling or meditation or listening to music or playing with your kid or petting a dog, like calming things that just bring your um, overall energy level or anxiety level down turn down the volume. And it's amazing to me how few people um, engage with those types of calming things in lieu of exercise. I'm glad you provided a list, a list there. Cause I was, I was just trying to think about like, what are some of those things? And it sounds like there are some that can easily be worked into pretty much any lifestyle. Cause those types of things are going to exist, whether if it's intentional breathing or meditation, or if you have a dog <laughs> or if you have a kid that you can spend time with, that's really encouraging. I was wondering if you know, so So I was at a parenting conference and they were talking about when you talk to your kids, um, for every one negative thing that they hear from you about them to hear one positive thing, it takes nine positives. So for every one like criticism to your child, they need nine positive things about them that would create them as like, I'm even in the sight of my parent. Um, which I found is like a really big, that's, that's crazy. Um, but it really obviously stuck out to me. 
I bring that up because I'm wondering if there is something like that in the in this reco- in this sleep and recovery realm. So if you're adding stress from running and work, are there certain kind of benchmarks you can meet when it comes to like these calming activities or a certain amount of time or number of activities that you should try to fit in in a, any particular day um, that that kind of counteract the stress that you put in your life? Or do you have recommendations for that? Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to phrase it um, because we do need to do some work to counteract the the high stress that we put on ourselves physically or emotionally. I don't have a benchmark for people because I think that adds to the stress, to be quite honest. It's just like, it's another thing. Our, <laughs> our lives are full of, of lists and things to do. Yeah, yeah. Like you don't want yeah. to sit in front of your coach or your physical therapist and just be like, you need to do items A, B, and C. And if you don't do it, you're going to die of atherosclerosis or something like that's, <laughs> that's a terrible way to phrase it. Right. No, that's not going to happen, but that's just yeah. adds more anxiety. So I tell people how I have this conversation is as their homework, I ask them to make a menu and keep it as simple as possible. Make a menu of three to four things that bring you joy. And it has to be a non-physical activity, relatively non-physical, not exercise-based, right? Things that bring you joy. It can be going for a really leisurely walk around the park. It can be petting your dog. It could be listening to music, playing music. It could be knitting, coloring. I don't care. Just make a physical list. And I, I say this to, this is verbatim. I look them in dead in the eye and say, write this shit down. I'm very serious because if we don't, and we're like, oh yeah, I'm going to like think of these three or four things and we let it live in our head. And then the time comes to do the thing. We're not going to do it for a lot of reasons, much, much less having to make another friggin' decision during the day. Right? So take the, take the decision out of it, write the list down, keep it at your bathroom vanity, at your nightstand, somewhere very, accessible to you three or four things and then you could you just get to choose that's the beauty of it you feel like oh what sounds good i got like five minutes of pet my dog or playing like legos with my kid whatever you know you shouldn't have to like think about those things but sometimes we do um so so making that physical list and letting it live somewhere accessible to to you is huge and it's amazing to me the response I've gotten from people like, oh my God, this is the simplest thing in the world, but it's changed everything because it takes down their anxiety in a way that's not exercise based and that doesn't immediately elevate their cortisol. So it's, and it just turns into a habit and the list can be fluid, right? You, you let the list live as three or four things. And they're like, wow, that doesn't really feel great. So I'm going to take that out and put this other thing in. Great. Do that, right? Let it be yours. That's great. Cool. So you got to make the stress management stress management menu. Love it. Make the menu. Write it down. Write it down, everybody. Um, so I, there's actually a lot more that we wanted to talk about, but we're coming we're coming down on time here. So I've got a couple other topics for you. And the first one is if you're someone. Um, maybe who's listening to this, who just hasn't thought a lot about sleep and knows that you have a bad sleep pattern. Um, what sort of, 
what, what's a good starting spot for like preparing your body to sleep? And if you want to start a new like sleeping rhythm or pattern, what kind of recommendations do you have for them? Yeah. The biggest thing I tell folks is you need to have a consistent time in which you go to bed. I don't care if it's a Tuesday or a Saturday, something that within like a 30 minute window I don't have research for that. That's just purely anecdotal to keep consistency. Honestly, something in a 30 minute window, you very consistently go to bed, right? And have a little bit of a routine around that. And I can talk ad nauseum about what that routine can look like, but just have a little bit of a system to it, right? The other thing is uh, temperature regulation. I think that's something a lot of people miss. I, I think that's a, a thing a lot of partners or bicker back and forth with each other about like, I'm always hot. My wife is consistently runs a little cooler than, or, uh, yeah, cooler than I do. So we bicker back and forth about the thermostat all the time. Like if it's hot or if I'm hot, I cannot sleep. I will not sleep. So I have to find some way to get my body to cool down. And there's hormonal responses with that too, that we could talk about when I have to right now, but, um, to just allow myself to sleep. So have a routine, a regular time in which you start your process and temperature regulation. Obviously it's gotta be dark. Um, that obviously helps. Um, you know, some people do the noise machines and all of this, but, um, we don't have to go into those nuances. Just have a regular routine, start time kind of thing and temperature regulation. Those are, those are my big things. Those are big top two. What about, um, so like, what are your thoughts on like reading in bed or screen time in bed or kind of like what, what should that, like, I'm going to go to bed at 10 o'clock. Should it be go to bed and fall asleep or can it be go to bed and like watch a show in bed or read a book or are those different things or just your thoughts on that? Too? Yeah. My, my personal opinion, um, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like super puritanical about this, but like I, I will never have a PT or a TV in my bedroom. I'll always have a PT in my bedroom. I am one, but, um, I will never have a, <laughs> <laughs> a hot joke. Um, can't escape that one. I know. I know. It's so bad. Oh. Um, sorry about that. Um, but I will never have a TV in my bedroom <laughs> just because that, that attentional focus to a screen distracts my brain from all the neurotransmitter and hormonal processes that it's trying to go through to even get to bed it's pulling my brain away from that process that it wants to be in. So I'm not watching shows in bed. I, I admit I do have a little screen time in bed. I try to limit that. I'm like kind of scrolling through my phone for the news for the day. Um, but, um, I try to limit that to about five minutes and then I'm done. Um, everybody does it. We all do it. Many of us do anyway. Um, you know, we need to limit that as much as possible because it just pulls your brain away from the hormonal and neurotransmitter process that it wants to be in. So everybody makes a, a big deal about the blue light or whatever. And it's not really as much about the light as it is about what's on the screen and what you're asking your brain to do. Mm-hmm. So it could be, so re- oh. go ahead, David, there you go. I will say there's something to be said as well about not having the TV in the bedroom that unconsciously your brain knows the time and place for things. And you're like, living room, we're lively, we're doing things. You go into the bedroom, you know, like it's time for bed. We are winding down. We're we're not going to be engaging in these activities anymore. 
whether it's an unconscious temptation thing, I don't know. This is anecdotally speaking, right? Like I don't have any hard science behind what I'm saying right now, but for me, it's it went the second I leave there and I'm in the room and the lights off and I hit the bed, you know, like it's time to go to bed. That's great. So, I mean, it, what's crazy about this conversation is a lot of the research and science that you've brought up sounds like it's not just done on runners. This is just like what happens to people when you do or do not sleep. Um, but I'm guessing there's also research in relation to running or sports performance. Um, so what do we know about how sleep or lack of sleep impacts kind of, this is kind of the last topic. Um, and then I have one final question for you. Um, but kind of, let's talk about how sleep and performance interact with each other. Oh my gosh, a ton. I mean, on a, on a day-to-day level, going back to that, like one night of sleep and followed up by a hard workout, right? You have a, a tempo workout that you've done before that you're familiar with that next day. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of my running work based on RPE, rate of perceived exertion. And that same tempo, whatever the mileage is, it may feel like an eight that day, whereas the last time I did it, it felt like a six, right? On a on a bad night of sleep. So it's just gonna be a lot harder potentially to get the same level of performance out of that workout after a bad night of sleep. So that's absolute on a, on a day-to-day level, that's how it affects performance. You know, if we stack stress upon stress, like we were talking about earlier, and repeated loss of sleep. The research behind um, increased injury risk in athletes is abundant. And I forget exactly what the number is, uh, but lack of sleep is responsible for almost a twofold increase in uh, injury risk in any athlete. It doesn't matter if you're an endurance athlete or an impact athlete or whatever. It's almost a twofold increase in injury risk um, if you're poorly slept. So it has huge implications for performance and just staying off of a PT's table or out of a doctor's office. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Um, well, I have one final question for you and this is because we have both, um, David and yourself here. So I think we talked about the, I think you guys talked about this before when I was not on the show, but is it burritos or is it tacos? Like if you could only have one in the world, which one stays and which one goes? Ryan, you get to start. Oh man, you're going to make me go. Burritos, man. I am. Burritos all day. Give me a burrito. Oh, this is why I asked the question. 100%. So why the burrito? What's, what's why the burrito? Why the burrito? Oh my God. Um, I don't know. I, I think, um, I have a, I have a cavernous mouth and it just is nice to take a massive bite of a burrito. I feel like a taco, you kind of just have to like nibble at a little bit and or else it falls apart in your hands. And it's just, just... you could, you could take a cavernous bite of a taco. (laughs) That's how they're meant to be eaten. Is it? I don't know. I don't Two, three know. bites, you're done. Yeah, I, I think that's also the annoying part is like, give me more. Give me more. Don't give me like... the beautiful part. You can try something new. 
I suppose that's true. I suppose that's true. Um, <laughs> Ryan's too, Ryan, don't be too nice. You, don't be too nice to David. You got to let him have it. Well, I, for me, I, the, the, <laughs> the tortilla makes the burrito, right? If, if it's a, if it's a well done tortilla, the burrito is everything. Um, and I, I, I enjoy getting through all of that tortilla instead of this like little bite-sized thing that a taco is, right? Like, I don't know if you're going to, if you're going to get after it on your tempo workouts, you got to fill up, man. David, I just don't think you're eating enough. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> David, give love, us, Nate, give Nate, us a Nate loves to take any little jab at me that he possibly can <laughs> on a daily basis. I, I, th- oh, I feel like I'm the one that gets trolled for real though. Like yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel like I, I troll you more than you troll me. Oh, that's, yeah. that's probably true. Yeah, no, that tr- is true. That's definitely it's definitely true. true. Not even kind of true. <laughs> that when you said what kind of shoe that each of us were, and you gave me a compliment, I was I was flabbergasted. I was like, I can't believe he didn't give me like the five fingers or something. I don't know. <laughs> like I just thought you'd give me something that you could troll me for, but you actually gave me a really great shoe um, and said it because I was like the dad of the group. So. But David, give us one one minute on why tacos oh. over burritos, and then I'll wrap things up for us. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why you can't take cavernous bites of tacos, right? There's so many different varieties to tacos. Like, it doesn't have to be this tiny little street taco that you envision. It can be something bigger, whether it's a homemade 8-inch corn tortilla. It can be a flour tortilla. I've had plenty of great flour <laughs> uh, tacos as well. But you can <laughs> ghost us as well. Like you, there's so many different variants that you can do for tacos, and then you can have your cake and eat it too. Like you can have asada, you can have pollo, you can have barbacoa. You know, you can have pastor. Like you can have whatever you want on the menu that day, and you don't have to feel bad about it because you know you can eat four or five of those tacos, and it's gonna match up to one boring pollo burrito. Like. <laughs> It's good. <laughs> so what you're saying is just don't like to com- you just don't like to commit to one type. Oh, here it is. Oh no no, I, I I'm happy to commit to three four tacos of the same kind, but it's it's a matter of what I want for that day, right? Like <laughs> I, I get to make that decision. I don't have to walk into it. <laughs> not to say that there's not great burritos in the world, but like. I I can I can choose exactly what I want across the menu and they don't all have to be street tacos like at least here a lot of the menus here have different kinds of tacos as well like they're not all like little ones some of them are bigger some of them have fillings in them some of them you know like yeah great thank I don't know and there's also a taqueria that just opened up like uh I mean it's got to be less than 400 meters from me it's definitely walking distance so you're that's pretty that's awesome dangerous. you're that's such dangerous. a runner by how and you it's just actually really that. good too <laughs> <laughs> yes, I measure things in meters. I can run there in a minute and fifteen seconds. <laughs> oh, faster! I, I know. <laughs> Depending on if you're wearing your New Balance or if you're wearing your Super Shoes. Oh, yeah. man. Great. I heard Vans move pretty quick. If you yeah, want, if you want to, spicy shoes. They're flats. <laughs> Great. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us again and and talking about sleep. Um, I just, I loved, I learned a lot from you today, just learning about kind of how this integrates into the life of a runner. I think that, you know, 
they be, you just do such a, I can tell you're a PT like us because your responses to the questions are very individualized and, you know, there's not quick fixes to anything and it's figuring out how do all these things fit into your life. So I always appreciate your wisdom and your thoughts. So thanks again for joining us. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but um, Ryan, again, he just opened his new clinic in Denver or Denver area. Um, but also you can find him online at long run physio if you're looking on Instagram. Um, but did, did I kind of say some of that stuff, right? Why don't you tell people about your website and yeah, your let, let him Instagram speak for himself, handle? Man. Yeah. <laughs> let him, sorry. Let him. <laughs> I was trying to be a good host, but I was just botching it. That's all right. That's all right. Um, yeah. So located in Denver proper Revo R E V O P T Denver. Um, you can find me at long run physio, um, or at, uh, Revo PT Denver on Instagram. I, I do both Revo PT Denver is the business side of things. Um, so left love to focus on runners and we are going to continue focusing on runners going forward. So love to see you guys. If you're ever in town, come check us out. Great. We'll do. Thanks so much again for joining us. Um, and I didn't think I'd ever hear the word cavernous said so many times in one podcast. So thank you for that as well. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you all later. Have a great <laughs> night, morning, day.